You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. How are we? Good morning, good morning. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1 is where we're going to be hanging out. Good to be with you this morning. And for those of you online, glad that you could tune in with us as well. You know, uh, the last four weeks were really meant to be just sort of standalone messages. They weren't really supposed to be a series. It was just kind of some, you know, one-offs. So James and I will do a sermon series, and, and then we'll have kind of the next sermon series planned. And usually there's three or four or five weeks in between where we just do these sort of one-off messages in the text and then move on to the next thing, and they're not necessarily connected with one another, just to give us time before we gear up for the next series. And um, it's sort of turned into a mini-series. We, we didn't intend this, and, and yet here we are. Four weeks ago... We uh, preached a message called Radical Discipleship, and we talked about, about what it means to be a disciple, which is really just another word for a Christian. And we talked about how disciples of Jesus are called to this kind of radical behavior because Jesus himself was a radical. And, and we talked about what a disciple is, someone who learns from someone else and is subservient to that individual. And radical disciples, what we said, are those who leave everything behind in their lives that matter to them, and they go and live for Jesus in everything that they do. And that was supposed to be it. One message, radical discipleship, and and, and that was the end. But then the next week, Chris Cunnington came, and and he shared with us, preached a message, and, and really what he talked about was additionally being a radical disciple. And and what he said was that disciples, he gave us that four-part paradigm, if you remember, that they spread, spot, stay, and sin. Radical, uh, not sin, sinned. That sounded like sin. Radical disciples, anyways. They, They spread out. They move out. They don't stay cloistered into a group. And they spot people as they are out who are warm to the gospel. They stay with them and disciple them, and then they send them out to make more disciples. And so as uh, Chris was really talking about radical discipleship as well, he cleverly named that message Radical Discipleship Part (laughs) 2. But we couldn't stop there. It just wasn't enough. And so last week we kept the trend alive. James and I preached a message called Radical Ambassadors. And what we said is is if an ambassador is someone, or a disciple rather, is someone who is subservient to and learning from someone else... An ambassador is someone who is sent by someone else. And for us in the church, that someone else is who? Jesus. Yes, the old-fashioned Sunday school answer, Jesus. Jesus is the one that we learn from. Jesus is the one that we serve. And Jesus is the one who is sending us as his ambassadors. We're not only radical disciples, we're radical ambassadors. And then that was supposed to be it. End of a three-part deal. Just kind of funny that it all worked together. But as many of you know, old habits die hard. And so this morning... We are continuing in this now unintentional sermon series that actually has a name. We're calling it Radical Faith. And we are going to talk this morning about what it means to be radical witnesses. 
Radical witnesses. We know what it means to be a disciple. We know what it means to be an ambassador. But what does it mean to be a witness? Acts chapter 1-8, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. What does that mean? What is a witness? The word here in the Greek is the word martus. It's a word actually that we get our English word martyr from. Interesting. There's a connection there. Those who have historically been witnesses have been martyred. And, and it is defined um, as you would expect. A witness is someone who could be defined as an eyewitness to a circumstance, a testifier, someone who testifies. Witnesses testify to what they know is true. Now, why? Why do they do that? Because they've witnessed it. It's not secondhand information. It's, it's real witnesses testify to what they know based on what they have seen, what they've experienced, what they know without a shadow of a doubt is certain. Now, this was true historically. It makes sense why the uh, early Christians were called witnesses, specifically the apostles. The apostles were referred to as witnesses in the New Testament, and they could testify because they were with Jesus. So it makes a lot of sense why they were called this. 1 John 1, verses 1 and 2, the beloved disciple writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That's talking about Jesus. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it. And what? We testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. They were witnesses. They were witnesses because they had seen him, they had heard him, they had talked with him, they had walked with him, they had touched him, and they were willing, as a result of that, to testify based on their experience. Early Christians were referred to as witnesses, and we today in the church in 2021 are also witnesses as well. If you are a Christian, if someone were to ask you right now, hey, are you a Christian, and your answer would be yes, What that means is you are not only a disciple who learns from Jesus, an ambassador who is sent by Jesus, but you are a witness for Jesus. And so we're going to talk this morning about what that means practically, and and we're going to look at perhaps one of the most radical witnesses of the New Testament, a man by the name of Paul the Apostle. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi that we call Philippians. And Philippians is an interesting letter. It was written at the end of Paul's life. And if you, if you do the math, it's not an exact science because the Scripture doesn't give us exact dates for when a lot of these things took place. But we know historically when, when certain events happen from extra-biblical sources. So we can kind of put the pieces together and do the math a little bit. This is what we find out. That Paul's born-again experience on the Damascus Road, many of you are familiar where he's blinded by the light, not the 70s song, right? But when he's on the Damascus Road, Jesus literally blinds him. Uh, He comes to faith somewhere around 34 A.D., 34 A.D. By contrast, Philippians, this letter, was written in 62 A.D. So this is roughly 30 years after Paul has become a Christian. The, The information that we get from Philippians is not from a newly minted Christian Paul. This is from a seasoned, veteran, full of wisdom Paul, and there are a lot of things that transpired in that 30 years that sort of built him up into the man that he is as he writes this letter. He went on three different missionary journeys. He planted a number of churches during that time frame, one of which was this church in Philippi. He was persecuted, he was beaten, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked, and now... Near the end of his life, he is imprisoned in Rome under house arrest, 
And during that time, under arrest, he writes this letter to the Philippians. And it is here that we learn in this letter what it means to truly be a radical witness for Jesus. In other words, when we, when we read this letter, we can ask questions like, what do witnesses do? How, how do they act? What do they say? How do they behave? What are they like? And we find the answers specifically in chapter 1. There are three things that we're going to discuss this morning regarding radical witnesses. First, radical witnesses bring comfort to their community. Radical witnesses bring comfort to their community. Look at verse 12. Paul says, now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, what does he mean by this? What is he talking about? We've got to come back to the context of the letter. Where is Paul during this time? He's in, yeah, he's in prison. He is in prison in Rome. Now, we have to remove ourselves a little bit from our current context and not, not read into this what is not there. When you read something like imprisonment, we got to be careful not to read the American prison system into this. He's not in isolation. He's not in a, in a high security facility. He's in a house. He's in somebody's home, and he is on house arrest there. Now we have like ankle bracelets that make sure you don't go, right? You don't leave. They didn't have that kind of technology back then, but they did have guards. They had people that were set up to watch him 24 hours a day, seven days a week, to make sure he didn't go anywhere. So he's under house arrest, and it's during this time that he begins to write this letter to the Philippian church. Now the community of faith, when they find out that Paul is in prison, they are freaked out about this. I cannot overemphasize this enough. Think about for a moment who Paul is during this time. He's practically invincible. 30 years of ministry and nothing has been able to stop him. He actually records some of his experiences in 2 Corinthians 11, 24 and 28. Listen to this. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Not the 1960s kind of stoned, by the way. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys and in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there was the daily pressure on me of my anxiety, Paul had anxiety by the way, praise God for that, for all of the other churches. This guy is a legend. This guy is a legend. 40 lashes minus one was practically a death sentence. You were lucky if you survived that. He had it five times. He had it five times. The stoning that he mentions here, he actually, it's described in, in Acts 14, 19. It says, the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. He was in such bad shape, they were like, we killed him. Let's go dump his body outside. We're done. They thought he was dead. Imagine how shocked they would have been when they like, saw him in the supermarket the next week. <laughs> Wait, was that, was that Paul? Yeah, this guy is, is a legend, and, and it's very hard to connect with this because of our context in the modern world. We live in a world that is so connected. The world is so much smaller today than it was even 20 years ago, much less 2,000 years ago. 
We have the internet, we have social media, we have smartphones. You can literally hear and sometimes see video of events almost directly after they happen from any part of the world at any time of the day or night. We have Facebook Live, we have Instagram Live, we have FaceTime. We have the ability to see things in real time in other countries at all times of the day. The ancient world was not like that. They didn't know oftentimes what was going on in other countries. They didn't even know most of the time what was happening in other cities. They had no nightly news, they had no website, there was no Twitter feeds, there was nothing to keep them up to date. They had mail that would take months to get from place to place. If it ever arrived, assuming that the mail carrier wasn't killed on the way or just died from natural causes, the world was giant, much bigger place than it is today. And the result of that then meant that many Christians in the world during 62 AD had never met Paul in their life. They didn't know what he looked like. They could have seen him in a crowd and not been able to pick him out. They had no idea who he was apart from the letters that were being circulated in the churches written by him and stories that were just being passed around about him. The guy was a legend. If you're a Star Wars fan, we're talking about Luke Skywalker here. I'll, I'll explain it later. Just talk to me afterwards. It's going to blow your mind. He survives impossible, impossible events for decades. And after all of these years of them thinking the man's invincible, nothing can stop him, God is on our side, he's like one of the judges, he's like David, he's like one of these people in the Old Testament that can just do these crazy things because the hand of the Lord is on him, we got this man, nothing can take him down. Wait, what? Wait, he's in, he's in jail? Are you serious? The once unstoppable Paul stopped by the evil empire of Rome. And people were terrified. This can't be happening. This can't be happening. No one can take down Paul. What do you mean? You've got to have, that, you've got to have your information wrong. That can't be right. What does this mean? Is God abandoned us? Is God through with us? So we get to verse 12, man, and, and verse 12 is awesome. One of the things that radical witnesses do is they bring comfort to their community that is gripped with fear and confusion. He says, hey, I, I know this might seem scary. I know, this, I know that some of you might be freaked out, but don't freak out. This isn't going to impede the gospel. Everyone just calm down a little bit. Now, you know, we don't face threats like this today in the American church. Imprisonment, death, not a huge concern for us in the United States. Christians in Afghanistan do, if there are any left, they're being murdered left and right right now. You should pray for them uh, in Afghanistan and other parts of the world where this kind of persecution is a real threat every day. We don't really face this kind of threat here, but there is a growing animosity towards the Christian faith in our country. There's, there's no doubt about it. It's tangible. It's real. You can, you can feel it. You can sense it. We're definitely in a post-Christian United States, and there are things that happen that do cause legitimate fear and panic and concern and confusion in the midst of the people of God. And hear me when I say this. Radical witnesses do not feed that fear. We don't feed it. Our responsibility is not to feed the drama. It's not to stir the pot. Our responsibility is to bring comfort to our community by reorienting us back to the gospel. The only thing that we have true hope in is the gospel of Jesus. So when a president or politician signs a law into place that is counter to our faith, when we can see the moral fabric of our world ripping apart piece by piece, 
we set the tone for the response. We are not dictated to what the response will be. We dictate the response. We as radical witnesses, we bring comfort to an otherwise fearful and angsty community of faith. We reorient, listen to this, we reorient our community back to the reality that every measure the world takes to crush the gospel only becomes another open door for the gospel. Radical witnesses bring comfort to their communities. Second, radical witnesses find opportunity and opposition. We find opportunity and opposition. Beyond simply comforting the community, we strategize in the midst of that opposition to find an opportunity strategically for the gospel. Paul is in prison. He reminds them, hey, this isn't a bad thing. Everybody can calm down. This isn't going to stop the gospel. But the question then becomes, well, why? How can you say that, Paul? And his answer is because there's opportunity here. There's opportunity here. Look at verse 13. He says, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now the word here for imperial guard, it's the word in Greek praetorion. Praetorion can mean a a couple of different things. They're all military groups, but depending on where the location is, where the praetorian guard is, dictates who we're talking about. Paul is in Rome in prison. The praetorian guard in Rome was very well known because these were the elite guards that lived in Caesar's kingdom, in the palace, and they were charged with protecting Caesar, being there at all times. They were highly trained. They were very, very important people. And because of Paul's reputation, Caesar chose the Praetorian Guard, some of them, to go and rotate every few hours in this house where Paul was staying to keep watch over him. These were very, very important people, and so it presented a massive opportunity for Paul. I imagine these guys were like betting and, and, and doing whatever they could to get out of the morning shift. Like, give me the night shift when the brother's asleep because he talks so much. Don't give me the morning shift. He's just always talking about Jesus. Paul saw this as a massive opportunity. He recognized the gospel's not being hindered by my imprisonment. This is actually an opportunity to reach some of the most important people that I would otherwise not have access to. It's kind of funny that when you think about Paul's life, he spends 30 years of his life traveling literally all over the world, facing every danger that we just read just to tell people about Jesus. And now in his twilight years, he is at home and they're just coming to him. Like this, he probably thought like, man, I've been doing this all wrong. I just needed to get arrested 30 years ago. If I'd have known they were going to come to me. They have to listen to him. They have to because they're, they're watching him. And if he escapes, then it's their death, right? They're, they lose honor. They're, they're put to death. And, and so it was just the perfect setup for him to constantly share Jesus over and over and over and over and over again. It must have been very maddening. But listen, here's the cool part. It worked. It succeeded. If you keep reading Philippians, some of these people did believe. Philippians 4, 21 and 22, this is the very end of the letter. Paul says, the brothers who are with me greet you. All of the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. All of the believers here greet you, especially the ones who live with Caesar. Now, who would that have been? The Praetorian Guard. Those men that had to sit for hours on end hearing about all of the journeys and Jesus over and over and over again. The gospel succeeded there. So when Paul writes in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. These weren't just empty words. Paul saw it work every day of his life. 
The gospel succeeds. It's like a stick of dynamite. You just throw it into the room and it will change the room. You don't have to do anything else. The whole point, this is so cool, the whole point of Paul's imprisonment was to shut the gospel down. That, that's what they were going for. This guy's causing too much trouble. It's been 30 years. The movement's growing. The churches are growing. They're, they're popping up everywhere. We got to put an end to this. And Paul's their sort of tip of the spear guy. So put him in prison. Shut it down. And it ends up advancing the gospel instead. It's truly a classic example, I think, of Romans 8.28. We love this verse. We talk about it often. That we know for those who love God, all things work together for good, and for those who are called according to his purpose. And, and, and this is what we see in Paul's life here in Philippians 1, that Paul loved God, he loved Jesus, and God worked out this imprisonment for good. It advanced the gospel. It didn't hinder it. He found opportunity in opposition. I want, I want you to come back now to our context here for a moment. <clears throat> and I want to ask the question, how different would your faith be if you chose to embrace opposition rather than run from it? How, how different would your walk with Jesus look if you found opportunity in opposition rather than cower away from it? This is very countercultural stuff, very countercultural way of thinking about the world around you. Christians, listen, Christians, we are called to be holy. It's a very churchy word, very religious-sounding word. It's a word that literally just means to be set apart. It means that you have a whole group here, and that if you are holy, you are pulled out of that group and set apart in a different category. You are different than the rest of the whole, the rest of people. One of the ways that you can be different, that you can be practically holy, is, is by changing the way that you look at opposition, to look at opposition differently than the rest of the world. The world, when they see opposition, they find inequity. When Christians look at opposition, we find opportunity. I just want to be honest with you for a minute, okay? Um, everything that you are subject to in this world, apart from godliness, okay? So apart from the church, in the, in the world, everything that you are subject to is designed to make you weak and afraid, all of it, to make you weak and afraid, to use fear to grip you and stop you and shut you down. Fear is of the enemy, fear is of Satan, and so it makes sense that this world system controlled by the prince of the power of the air, as the scriptures call him, would be governed by fear. Everything in this world you are subject to is designed to make you weak and afraid. Think about the headlines that you read, and, and don't, don't go political on me here, don't, liberal or conservative, I don't care whatever outlet you're reading from. Headlines that you read are written to get your attention. That's the whole point of the headline, to make you click on it. Because there's a thousand things you could click on. So I gotta put something up on the screen that's gonna get your attention. What better way to get your attention than to strike you through fear? This is the strategy in the world today, especially for COVID-19. Now, let me say up front, I've had COVID. It was horrible, I was very sick. Do not email me and tell me that I am not taking COVID-19 seriously because I do. It was awful. I got the shot, okay? <sighs> I got it because it, it was awful. It was very sick. And any chance of not having to experience that again, I, I, I like those odds, okay? So hopefully that will give me some credibility with some of you so, so you can actually hear what I'm saying. I want you to think critically for a moment. Think critically for a moment. Articles... Right now, this morning, Google it, about COVID-19 
read in such a way that it is the worst threat to your health in existence, in human history. Now, by contrast, I want you to think about this for a minute. Have you read anything in the last week, month, year about the dire consequences of the food industry in the United States? That the cheapest and, and most easy to purchase and most available meals at all times of the day and night come from a drive through fast food on nearly every corner in every city. You want organic vegetables from Central Market? Get a second job. You want $15 meal for five people? Ronald McDonald has you covered. I know, because he covered me two days ago. When was the last time you saw an article that warned you about the consequences of the kind of food habits that Americans choose on a day-to-day -day basis? The consequences of those food choices. Or how about sugar? I've, I've done Whole30 recently, and, and uh, what you find is that you can literally eat nothing. There's nothing that doesn't have sugar in it, other than just like meat and vegetables. Everything, tomato sauce, sugar, chicken broth, sugar. Beans, sugar, everything has sugar in it. Have you, have you read anything about that? Or what about cigarettes? This is the, this is the amazing thing to me. COVID-19 attacks what? Your lungs. So why are we not talking more about cigarettes as well? Now, here's the big kicker. If you go to the CDC website, you know what the worst killer in America right now is from January to August? Heart disease. You know what the second number one killer is, or second number one, second killer is? Cancer. And you know what contributes highly to all of those things? Fast food, sugar, and cigarettes. That's what the science says. That's what peer-reviewed articles say. Again, I'm not saying that COVID-19 is not bad. What I'm saying is, by the numbers, it's not the worst threat to your health. The world wants you to think that it cares about your health. It doesn't care about your health at all. It doesn't give a crap about you. It wants you weak and afraid and stupid. And listen, it's working. Not just in the world, but in the church. Christians are overwhelmingly weak. For those of you who don't know me well, I, after I did my Master of Divinity, I stuck around and did a second Master's of Theology, and my major was the early church, early church history, patristics, the years that, that fall right after the apostolic era up to imperial Christianity in about 323 A.D., Constantine and Augustine and, and all of that, that era there. So there's about 300 years in that time frame of really raw, untamed Christianity. And we've got a ton of, of information, writings from historians and church fathers, and, and get a really cool picture of what the church was like in those formative early years. And there's a time in Rome between 249 and 262 AD known as the Cyprian Plague. We're not really sure what the plague was, it was probably some kind of variant of smallpox or a, a viral hemorrhagic fever similar to Ebola. Uh, whatever it was, it effectively killed 15 to 20 percent of the empire. It was extremely contagious and it was violently deadly. Averaged roughly 5,000 people a day in death. By contrast, the highest death day in the United States was about f a little over 5,000. But that was the highest peak. The average at this point is about 1,100. So statistically, there's probably some more, there's probably some more uh, exact analytics that could be done. But, but ballpark, it's about five times more deadly than what we're experiencing today, the Cyprian Plague was. Eusebius, a church historian during this time, records the words of a man named Cyprian, who was the 
bishop in Carthage while the plague was taking place. And Cyprian, through the words of Eusebius, or through the writing of Eusebius, says this. He says, most of our brothers in Christ showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Christians were unlike any other people in the world during this time. Other writings say that while everyone was fleeing from Rome to try to get away from death and try to get away from sickness, as many of of the people that were leaving, Christians were coming in to Rome. They were coming in to live with these people who had been infected because they saw an opportunity for the gospel. They saw opposition, and while everyone else fled, they went, hey, there's an open door. Christians were not weak. They were not afraid. It's interesting that weak and afraid is the opposite phrase of what God says to his people over and over and over again through the Old Testament. What did God say to Joshua? Be weak and afraid. No, he says be strong and courageous. Christians in the third century were strong and courageous. Even if it meant dying, they did it cheerfully because the gospel advanced. Folks, this should make you uncomfortable. This should make you uncomfortable. It's like we forget the words of Jesus that says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I mean, did you hear that? Does that not make you uncomfortable? Jesus is saying, if you want to be a Christian, you give up everything that matters to you, including your life, and you get ready to die for me. This is shocking. We don't like to talk about this. We don't like to talk about what Paul says eight verses after this in Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In what world is death gain? Death is overwhelmingly loss, but not for Paul. Not for radical witnesses, because radical witnesses don't count their lives as important as the gospel. That is so hard to connect with in the American church today. This is what radical witnesses do. They comfort their communities in the midst of fear. They find opportunity in the midst of opposition. They charge head first towards that opportunity, even if it means death awaits them. They think to themselves, you know what? People are getting sick all around me. They're having to quarantine alone. Their families won't even go near them to love on them and provide food for them and and care for them. I have an idea. Let's go move into their guest room and share Jesus with them every day. This is radical. Radical witnesses bring comfort to their communities. They find opportunity and opposition. Last, radical witnesses motivate the movement. One of the results of Paul's Radical witness in prison was the faith of many of the Praetorian Guard, but there's something else that happened as well, an additional effect of his witness. Look at verse 14. It says, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The result is that others started sharing the gospel as well. They saw what Paul was doing and they got excited. They caught the vision of what Paul was doing and they wanted to join him. They brought motivation to the movement by simply sharing the gospel. You have to understand this. You inspire other people to step out of their comfort zones and do it as well. At the end of the day, folks, this is what Christians do. This is the charge that God gives us. Do we bring comfort to our communities? Absolutely we do. Do we find opportunity in opposition? You bet. 
But all of that is for the sole purpose of the gospel. That's the goal. That's the quest. That's the journey. That's the mission. Share Jesus. At the end of the day, a witness testifies about what they know is true regarding the Lord. Now, let me end here with a just sort of a personal note to you and a story that I think might help encourage you coming out of a message like this. Because I know enough as doing pastoral ministry, it's been <coughs> almost 10 years. Uh, I, I know the objections pretty well now that are swirling around the room after a message like this one. We talk about radical witnessing, radical sharing, sharing your faith, dying for Jesus. I know, I know the thoughts of a lot of you, not because I can read your mind, but just because I've talked to you enough over the years after we've talked about these things to just kind of know and put together what people are thinking. Some of you feel disqualified by your past. When we talk about being a radical witness, you feel like your past disqualifies you to some degree. Maybe it's addiction, maybe it's a failed marriage, maybe it's a broken family, maybe it's something else. But whatever it is in your past, you're thinking to yourself, why would God use a failure like me? And let me answer you by saying, God is in the business of using failures like you. It's kind of his thing. I know from experience, because I, I, I am one, that God ripped out of failure, ripped out of brokenness, and used. The moment I said, Lord, I don't have anything of value to give you, but if you will take me, I'll do whatever you ask. He can do that for you too. Some of you are, are thinking, I just don't know enough. You know, I, I just don't know enough of, of scripture, of theology. I could never lead someone to Christ because I don't know enough theology to do so. And here's the thing, radical witnesses don't testify to what they know about theology. They testify about what they know of Jesus. Now, theology is important. It's, it's, again, a huge passion of mine. But you don't have to have systematic theology under your belt to share about what Jesus has done for you in your life and what he offers a sinner broken and ready for change. You, you don't need much. Just a testimony of the changed life in Christ that you have. Some of you are thinking, you know what, I'm just too old to be a radical witness. You know, maybe you're retired, maybe you have grandkids and great-grandkids, and you've moved in that point of your life where you're just, you're just thinking to yourself, honestly, if God were going to use me like that, he would have done that already. You know, I think that door's kind of shut. I've got other things I can do, but I, I don't know that being a witness is really like my thing. <laughs> you know, back in 2012, I had the privilege to go and lead worship at the summit in Williston, North Dakota. Now, I know what many of you are thinking, why would you go there? <laughs> uh, we had a, a couple in our church, in fact, he was an elder at one time, Dick and Meg Getchell, uh, wonderful people, love the Lord. Meg was uh, in the oil business and got moved pretty suddenly out of Fort Worth into Williston, North Dakota, about 40 miles south of the Canadian border. And about a year after uh, they moved, they put together this summit with seven or eight other churches. Their church was the organizing church, but about seven or eight other churches uh, participated with them because what was happening is there was a massive oil boom in Williston, and it created a sort of cause and effect that was not good for their city. They were, they were bringing in, by the, by the plane loads, 18 to 21-year-olds, boys, and not men, who had all of the sudden at their disposal a six-figure income and no other responsibilities in their lives. 
Now, if you know anything about 18 to 21-year-old boys, that is a recipe for disaster. Prostitution went up, sex addiction went up, drug addiction went up, alcoholism went up, because they had all the money and time in the world to do really nefarious, stupid, self-serving, self-gratifying things. So these churches recognize that. And they thought, you know what? These guys are on our doorstep. We got to do something. We got to strategize. We got to come up with a plan. The, 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 the field is white. The harvest is ready. Let's go. We got to have a plan. And so they, they brought in, if you've ever read the book, uh, it's like an internationally best-selling book, Experiencing God by Henry and Richard Blackaby. Fantastic book. In fact, the Experiencing God Day-by-Day devotional is one of my favorite devotionals on the market. Really, really good stuff. Henry's the dad. Richard's the son. Richard Blackaby was their keynote speaker at this summit. And they flew in me for worship. <laughs> Talk about being way out of my league. This was 2012. I mean, I, like, I was 26 at this point, 27. Had no idea what I was doing. And I was there with Richard, listening to him preach every time he got up. And, and Richard was just a, a fantastic, storied individual. He just had all this experience. And he told this story one night that blew my mind. I will never forget it. For as long as I live, it is like etched into me. It's about a woman named Nell that he met at some time uh, prior to uh, telling the story. Nell was a 65-year-old woman, uh, member of a church, married for around 40 years, uh, active in her church, was a part of a Bible study, faithful giver, uh, just a godly woman, a, a kind of couple that you would look at and as a pastor would, would think like, man, these are cornerstone couples. These are the people that I want my younger couples to learn from, how to do marriage better, how to do parenting better, how to be a better church member. These are the poster children for what that looks like. One night as they were heading home for dinner, uh, an 18-wheeler swerved out of its lane and hit head-on the car that Nell and her husband were driving on. It crushed the front end of her car as it moved on top of it. It crushed her, her knees, her shins, her ankles. Every bone in her leg was essentially shattered. She was in such excruciating pain that, that she cried out to God, Lord, kill me. She ended up living, and, and she says that in that moment, while she was begging for death, she didn't hear God's voice audibly, but, but she felt very strongly that God was saying to her inwardly in her spirit, Nell, I'm not done with you yet. She made it to the hospital. Her husband made it to the hospital. She was there for about six months. She had rods and screws and plates and bolts and everything you can imagine in her legs. Her husband, after a couple of months fighting in the hospital, finally uh, succumbed to death, lost the fight. And coming out of the hospital, Nell was a 66-year-old widow who walked with a really awkward limp and was trying to figure out, haunted by these words that she believed God spoke to her, I'm not done with you. She went to church one Sunday morning and saw an advertisement for a witnessing training class. And she thought to herself, you know, I'm 66 years old and I've never once in my life shared the gospel with someone else. I love Jesus. I love studying the Bible. I've memorized scripture. I've been in a Bible study for years. I have my, my Bible is highlighted and underlined and circled, but I've never shared the gospel with a single person. But then she started to have second thoughts. She thought, no, I'm, I'm going to look like a fool in there. I'm going to be the oldest person in the room. I haven't been to school in 40 years. I don't even know how to study. What if there's a test? By the way, we, we, 
there is never a test in a church class, okay? <laughs> if for any other reason that we don't want the work of having to grade them. She finally decides, you know what, I'm going to take the class. And, and so she, she does, and she loves it. She, she just loves it. She learns how to ask ice-breaking questions and how to, how to use certain scripture verses to tell the gospel story, the Romans road, and, and just the whole nine yards. She's really loving it. The last day of class rolls around. pastor says, hey, we're not having class today. She says, well, what do you mean it's the last day? She goes, he said, no, we're, we're not going to have class today, but what we're going to do is after church, you're going to come with me. There's a new couple that's coming that I think is ready to believe the gospel, and I'm going to go to their house and share the gospel with them, and you're coming with me. And she goes, oh, I, I don't know that I can do that. And he said, hey, don't worry about anything. You're not going to have to talk at all. I'm going to do all the talking. Your job is just going to be to come and, and pray for them in your spirit as I'm sharing, and if anyone walks into the room, you go and intercept them so that they're not distracted by what I'm saying. And she says, okay, pastor, I'll go. So they go, and, and they're sitting there in the living room talking, and the pastor's sharing, and she's taking note of what he's saying, and she's praying, Lord, open their hearts. And the door swings open across the room, and in comes the 15-year-old daughter. And she thinks, okay, i got to be dutiful here. The pastor told me to go and intercept. And so she walks over. And she says, hi, I'm Nell, and I'm with the pastor from the, whatever the church is. And she thought, you know, I didn't really know what else to say to her. And I had all this evangelism stuff in my mind. And so I thought, here's an opportunity. What could go wrong? The answer is everything. She began to talk to her, and she said, immediately I realized, oh, I didn't even ask the ice-breaking question. And and then she started stammering over the verses and misquoting them and having to go back and wait, I didn't mean to say that, but, but what actually the Bible says is this. And, and she was talking upwards and down and left and right. And finally at the end of it, she just, you know, confusingly kind of said, so does that sound like something you'd want to do? <laughs> and the 15-year-old girl said, yeah. And she said, wait, really? And she said, Yeah. And that little girl prayed in the living room there to receive Christ with Nell. And she was just so, she was so shook by that. I mean, just an incredible feeling. And she said she went home and she said, I immediately left. I went to the store. I got a journal. I came home and I, and I opened the journal up. And on the first line, I wrote Nell, or this little girl's name down. And I, and I wrote the date. And I wrote just a sentence description of what happened. And she said, and I sat there and, and I was so elated. And I prayed and I just said, God, I'm 66 years old. I'm not getting any younger, but before I die, give me one more name. One more name. Next day, she had a doctor's appointment because she was still having a lot of physical problems, right? Her legs were, were an issue, and so she was in the waiting room waiting for the checkup, and there was a woman sitting across the aisle from her that looked very, uh, just very concerned, very, very nervous, very downtrodden, and, and she said she just felt so bad for her. She was an older woman and walked over and sat down next to her, and she said, sweetheart, what's going on? And she said, well... <clears throat> She said, I had a biopsy done about two weeks ago, and I'm about to find out the results of it today. And Nell said, out of my mouth came these words, well, you can't go into that meeting alone without God. Do you know Jesus? And the woman said, well, no, I don't. And she shared the gospel with her. And that woman prayed to receive Christ right there in the waiting room. And so she went home again and, and wrote the name down. And 14 years later, Blackaby goes to see Nell on her 80th birthday. And he walks into her home and, and sits down at her kitchen table and, and starts talking to her. And he says, Nell, you know what I want to see. And she had the journal sitting there on the table and she slid it across the table to him. And he said, I wanted to know what number she'd gotten to. And so he said, I opened it up and 
and started flipping through it and flipping through it. And he goes, I kept getting closer and closer to the end. Finally, I got to the last page and, and it was all the way full. And, and he, he said what had happened is when she first started it, she was writing the names down on every other line and leaving a blank space in between. And so when she got to the end, she had to go back to the beginning and start filling in the other lines. <laughs> so he said he starts flipping through again and he, and he wanted to get down to what her most recent entry was. Nell had led 3,142 people to Jesus. Now that's not... 3,142 gospel presentations. That's 3,142 people who will be in eternity with the Lord because she shared the gospel with them. There were way more gospel presentations because a lot of people say no. These people will be in heaven because she was obedient to share as a radical witness her testimony regarding Jesus. Now listen to me. Some of you have that potential That may freak you out. I don't know what God has in store for you, but some of you may be like Nell. Some of you may not be like Nell, but I know this for certain. Let me give you a truth. You will never lead anyone to Christ if you don't start with someone. You will never lead anyone to Christ if you don't start with someone. But you've got to catch the vision. A year after that, Blackaby called her on her 81st birthday. He said, happy birthday, Nell. How are you doing? And she said, I'm good. And and he said he could hear some kind of commotion in the background. And he said, did I catch you at a bad time? And she said, no, no, that's just my nurse. And he said, what do you mean your nurse? And she goes, oh, I'm in the hospital right now. And he said, what do you mean you're in the hospital? And she said, yeah, I had a stroke a couple days ago. And she said, I'm doing okay, but they're just keeping me to observe me for a little while. And he said, wow, no, I'm so sorry to hear that. that on your birthday of all times. She goes, no, it's totally fine. I've led three people to the Lord since I've been here. <laughs> We get this idea, I think, sometimes that that I don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes to do it. I just, God could never use me like that. And that's a lie. It's just simply a lie. Sharing your faith, sharing the gospel is just a simple act of obedience. That's it. You may not lead 3,000 people to the Lord, but what if it was one person? What if it was one individual who is right now a citizen in eternity of hell, but because of your obedience ends up being transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, as Paul says, and is born again because you chose to step out of your fear, outside of your comfort zone, and share with them the most important news that they could possibly ever have. Radical witnesses bring comfort to their communities. We reorient that fear that people have back to the gospel. And when opposition arises, we find opportunity, and that inspires other people to do the same. It may even inspire ourselves more to do more of it like Nell. I love that at the very uh, last time he talked to her, he said, Nell, what changed in you? What You were 66 years old, and you had never told anybody about Jesus. What changed? And this is what she said. I finally started to believe that nothing was impossible for God. I finally started to believe what we say all the time, that nothing is impossible for God. Do you believe that? Do you actually believe that? Will you testify to the truth of that? Do you even know Jesus to testify on his behalf? Maybe you don't. Maybe today's the day. Maybe today, right now, is the day you bow before him. You put aside all of your objections and your skepticism, and you say, Lord, I'm not much, 
I made a lot of mistakes. I got a lot of broken past. The ledger is full of red in my life, but it's yours if you want it. Watch him take your shipwrecked life and change other people with it. He can do that. We see it here all of the time at City on a Hill. Drug addicts, sex addicts, broken marriages, people who the, the world, society, and quite frankly, a lot of other churches have rejected. Jesus doesn't reject them. Jesus embraces them. I come for the sick, not the well, Jesus says. It starts with obedience. Bow before him. And if you do know the Lord, it starts with believing that actually you and a person like Nell are not any different at all. The only difference is she actually believed God could do what you don't believe he can do through you. You got to change that belief because he can and he will. It's not up to you to save them. It's not up to you to bring them. And they can say no to you 50 times and that's fine. That's not on you because if they say yes to you one time, that's not on you either. It's just the obedience to do what you're asked to do and let the Holy Spirit convict and let the Father in heaven draw and let Jesus save. Radical witnesses testify. Will you? I pray you will and that God will use you. Pray with me. Father, thank you for witnesses like Nell who just kind of shock every part of our being when we hear stories like that. The most unsuspecting person doing some of the most impossible things. And we recognize it's, it's because it's not her that's doing them. It's you. She just stepped out and was willing to testify. I pray, God, that you would spark a fire within every one of your people here this morning. And that we would step outside of ourselves and get comfortably uncomfortable with sharing the best message, the greatest news that there has ever been. I pray for those this morning who don't know you, but God, perhaps your Holy Spirit is bringing conviction right now. I pray that they would bow before you and believe, be born again today, enter into eternity on the right side of eternity today to experience the forgiveness that we only find in you because of Jesus and the cross. How we love you and we thank you for the opportunity that we can be a city on a hill, a light into the darkness. I pray, God, we do that that we'd press into that and watch you go to work and be amazed. How we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Let me just say as a reminder, uh, if you have the willingness to stick around, um, we would love for you to grab a couple chairs and move them somewhere. I, I think Kelsey will be here directing. He's probably back there. Um, I don't know if we're moving them just to the side or out in the hallway, but we need to get them clear of this room because we're going to have tables in here for Friday and Saturday, which leads me to point number two. After you're done moving the chairs, go sign up for Taking Shape. We want to see you here. God bless you. We'll see you next time. <laughs>